Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During Advent, we are doing a sermon series called The Chosen One, which focuses on the various events leading up to Jesus' birth. I hope you enjoy. And now we will look at Isaiah 7, 10 to 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary, for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. The word of the, oh, he shall eat curds and honey (laughs) by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, The land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. The word of the Lord. That was a good stop right there, right? (laughs) I was just following the lectionary, right? I mean, that's what it told me to do. That's what I was following. Okay, so... All right, the next scripture reading from Matthew 1, 18 to 23. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This is the word of the Lord. So during Advent, we've been doing a sermon series called The Chosen One, where each week we look at the events leading up to Jesus' birth. And if you've been here, I told you that this story of Jesus' birth, it unfolds in the form of an epic. So there are prophecies and messengers, angels and family drama, and that drama builds each week to bring us closer to the birth of the Chosen One. So there's a split emphasis in this series. First half, we're looking at the character in the story and how that character contributes to the fulfillment of the prophecy. The second half is really focused on trying to understand how that character speaks to God's work in the world. In particular, how the path to Jesus' birth is also our path to better understanding God's purpose for our lives. So, this week we have come to the last sermon in our series before the birth of the Chosen One, which will be Tuesday evening. And I look forward to seeing every single one of you there for that. And Last week, we talked about Mary and how she was very surprised that she was going to be giving birth to the Messiah. Now, if you weren't here for that particular sermon, I would recommend going back and watching it, not only because we had the opportunity to talk about Mary and the poem that she speaks, but we also talked about a poem from Khalil Gibran, 
and we made, I worked with my sons, and we put together a really beautiful film that talks about that poem and what it means to us. But this week, we are moving forward where we're looking at Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, and his contribution to the prophecy. Now, I think it's really important before we jump into Joseph that we talk a little bit about marriage in the ancient world. Some of you have been here when I've spoken about marriage before, but I think it's important that we kind of lay the groundwork for this. So, in America today, why do we marry? You marry for what? Love. love. You fall in love, right? Meet that special someone, you end up getting married, you have a family. Not the way it worked in the ancient world. So, in the ancient world, what would happen is that your parents would literally arrange your marriage. Marriage was really about strengthening your family. So the way it would work is that your parents would go out, they would meet other families in the community, and they would say, huh, this looks like we could really have a strong relationship with each other. This could maintain or improve our family names. So what they would do is they would end up saying, okay, your son, our daughter, we'll get together, you guys get married. And in this way, what it would do is it would form uh, it would form these different type of alignments with each other so that you could strengthen your family. Now, you as a child, you had very little say in all of this because if you were a child, particularly in the area of Galilee, where Jesus was from, as a girl, you were being married off between the ages of 12 and 14. If you were a boy, you'd be married off between the ages usually of 16 and 18. So this gives you a little bit of sense of Mary, Joseph, kind of who they were. They were teenagers, and they didn't probably know each other all that well, and they were put in this situation because their parents said, hey, let's move forward with this. Now, there's something about marriage, though, in the ancient world that I have not told you before. I've avoided it up to this point, but it's very, very important for what we're going to be talking about today. So, if you were a girl in the ancient world, what made you valuable in marriage was your virginity. If you were not a virgin, then you could not get married. If you'd had any sexual contact, even if you had been sexually assaulted, then you were no longer eligible for marriage because no man would want to marry you. Now, this issue was so incredibly important to the people in the ancient world that it's actually codified in our Old Testament. There was a law about this in Deuteronomy 22. And we're going to read that law because it's really, really critical for what we're going to be discussing today. So let's take a look at it. Suppose a man marries a woman and slanders her by saying, I married this woman, but when I lay with her, I did not find evidence of her virginity. The father of the young woman and her mother shall, oh, her mother shall then submit the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city. Now, if the parents are unable to provide evidence of their daughter's purity, this is what happens. Jump forward for me. If, however, this charge is true, that evidence of the young woman's virginity was not found, then they shall bring the young woman out to the entrance of her father's house, and the men of her town shall stone her to death. So this is a very, very serious thing. You have to understand that I'm giving you this background because it provides you some context for what's going on with Mary at this point in time. Getting pregnant out of wedlock was a very serious situation for Mary. It would be one thing if she was engaged to Joseph and then she got pregnant because she got with Joseph. Like, that would be one thing, right? 
And that was understandable. Those were situations that the community and the families, they could get through that. But it's a completely different thing when she's engaged to Joseph, and then she becomes pregnant by a completely different source. That's bad. And the likely outcome of that is that she would be stoned to death by the elders in Nazareth for being unfaithful to Joseph. Now, that doesn't end up happening because what the scripture tells us is that Joseph takes a different path. So let's take a look at what it says here. Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. Very short verse, isn't it? Right there. Very easy to walk past that verse and not even think about what it means. But this gives you a world of information. So what this tells you is that rather than take this situation to the elders, he makes a decision. And the decision is, I'm not going to bring shame to her family by highlighting to the elders of Nazareth that she is pregnant. Instead, he's going to withdraw the offer for marriage, and he's going to move on with his life. Now, I want you to appreciate something, how rare this actually was in the ancient world. Under most circumstances, once the offer of marriage had been made and had been accepted by both families, a pregnancy like the one we're talking about with Mary would result in immediate execution. There is no doubt about that. And the reason why is because it would have brought such great shame to both of their families. And because of this, you have to realize that it would have taken a lot for Joseph to get his family to back down from having him claim that right to have her executed. And this is why this law exists in the Old Testament, this law that we read. And by the way, it's not just in the Old Testament. This is all over the Middle East. And in fact, there are certain places to this day that still have this law over there. The reason why the law exists is that it was thought to lift shame from both of the families. It lifts shame from the family of the husband-to-be by avenging his loyalty to a woman who was unfaithful to him. And it lifts the shame from the family of the bride-to-be by removing her from the family lineage. After her execution, she would never be spoken of again. It would be as if she never existed. So you have to realize that it would have taken a lot of doing on Joseph's part to get her family and his family to back down from this. But this tells you the kind of man that he would have been, that he was able to do this, that even at such a young age, remember what I tell you, how old is he between what ages? 16, 18, somewhere in there. I mean, he's a young man, that he was able to do this. So what does this tell us about him? This tells us that he was a man of great character, that he was a man who was loving and kind and generous and most of all, understanding. But the story doesn't end there, does it? Because it would be one thing if he just walked away and he said, hey, have a good time. But he doesn't. What does he do? He, what happens is he makes the decision he's going to withdraw the offer for marriage. And then an angel comes to him and says to him, hey, uh, just so you know, I really want you to follow through with this marriage thing. Now just think about that for a second, right? Like, let's just recap where we just were so that we're all on the same page, right? Mary is pregnant with a child who is not Joseph's kid. And under normal circumstances, not only would he not marry her, but he would have her executed. So just think for a moment. We read past it. We say, oh, the angel asked him, of course, he's probably super happy to do that, right? No. 
Like you have to think about the gravity of what's being asked of him right now. Think about the sacrifice that he would have to make. By marrying Mary, that's all weird, all hard to say, and the memorization of that, marrying Mary doesn't go together too well. So by marrying her, you have to realize he's marrying a woman who everybody in Nazareth knows was unfaithful to him, and then he has to raise a son who is not his own. And this was almost never done. You have to realize that a child that was born out of wedlock, like Jesus, they were pariahs. Like, oftentimes, the child who was born out of wedlock, they were not raised with their paternal parent. They weren't raised with their father because there was so much social stigma attached to the birth. So by sticking with Mary, not only is he sticking with a woman that everybody believes cheated on him, but he also has to raise a child who everybody believes is the product of an illicit affair and not an illicit affair with him. So I'm going to tell you that in the ancient world, this was unthinkable, unimaginable. So if what Matthew is saying is true, if it actually played out this way, then I'm telling you right now it would take an act of God because there's no other way that a situation like this would have unfolded. So as much as we sit here and we say to ourselves, Mary deserves credit, and by the way, she does, for bringing Jesus into the world, we also have to remember that Joseph deserves just as much credit for his role in protecting Mary and being willing to set aside the cultural and moral norms of his day to be willing to raise this child who is not his own flesh and blood. So you with me so far? Okay. All right. Now, I'm going to tell you why I love this story so much. I love this story because to me, how Jesus' life begins is really the whole foundation of where the gospel goes later on. So when you think about this story, it's the perfect setup for what Jesus would do later. Because what's being asked of Joseph is something that when you step back and think about it, to take Mary as his wife, to love Jesus, and raise him as his own child, that's a bit unnatural, isn't it? He's being asked to love somebody who he would not naturally love. He's being asked to love somebody who under normal circumstances, not only would he reject them, but he would have them executed. And by love, what I mean is, he now has to take responsibility for two people who are going to make his life immeasurably harder. Because as the man of the household, this is the ancient world, women didn't work, they weren't earning a living, what does he have to do? He has to provide for these two people, and then he's got to navigate the social stigma of being associated with them. Like you just think, oh, that's no big deal. It was a big deal. He'd lose family. He'd lose friends over this. I mean, that's a huge thing. And it's not just for a little while. It's for the rest of his life. Now, I want you to imagine your place in that situation. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, I need you to upend your entire life to be willing to take on these two people who you could walk away from, would you be willing to do it for the rest of your life? I mean, I think most of us in here, if we were given that choice, we'd say, thanks, Mary, but I'll see you later, right? Like, really appreciate it, but best of luck to you. I hope you figure something out with that. I mean, that's how most of us would act. But when you think about what Joseph does with Mary, it's exactly what Jesus is asking us to do in the Gospels. So you're probably familiar with the commandment. You've heard it before. Love your neighbor as yourself. You ever heard that one? All right. Hope you have. So love your neighbor as yourself. 
this commandment that Jesus gives to us in the Gospels, the intention behind this commandment is the exact opposite of what most of us think of when we're actually imagining it. So when we imagine this commandment, what do we think? What are we thinking of? We think, treat other people the way what? You want to be treated, right? But that is only the surface level of loving your neighbor as yourself. What happens if your neighbor is different from you? So what happens if your neighbor, let's say your neighbor, you're white. What if your neighbor is Latino? What if your neighbor is black? What if your neighbor is Asian? Is that going to change the way that you love your neighbor? What if your neighbor thinks differently than you do? What if you're conservative and they're liberal? Are you going to still love that person? What if they are on opposite sides of the aisle? What if you're a Republican and that person is a Democrat? Are you still going to love them? Just asking. So what if, what if in that situation, I'm just asking, just saying. Not that anything's going on today that would bring that up for us. What if that person believes different things than you believe? What if you're a Christian and they're not? Are you still going to love that person? What if they come from a completely different culture than you come from? What if they don't care about the things that you care about? We're about to celebrate Christmas, aren't we? What if that person doesn't care about Christmas, doesn't mean a thing to them? Now, what if this person, when you go to them, what if they speak in derogatory ways about you? What if you're gay and they're straight and they say, you know, I really hate gay people. Are you still going to love that person? What, what about if this person is actively trying to hurt you? What if you're gay and they're straight and they want to get rid of you? Are you still willing to love that person? I ask you these questions because it makes it harder, doesn't it? It's hard to love someone when they are actively trying to hurt you. You see, I think for most of us, when we hear the call to love our neighbor, we have a very specific box of what we think our neighbor is. So we sit there and we say, okay, well, if I'm going to love my neighbor, I'm going to love somebody who's white. I'll love somebody who is Christian. That works for me. Probably conservative. That'll work out well. And then we'll go with somebody who likes Christmas, right? So we'll go with that, and we'll put those in there, and we'll throw in straight to boot, right? So you have your box, right? And this is the box of the people who you're willing to love. But then if somebody's outside of that box, well, you have a lot of stones to throw, don't you? And you see, what Jesus tells us is that actually, you're not allowed to do that. That in fact, we think, well, if it's outside of my box, it doesn't really apply to me, Jesus. You told me to love my neighbor, that's my neighbor, right? But Jesus tells us the exact opposite is true. That in fact, that when you meet somebody who doesn't fit your particular description of what a neighbor is supposed to be, that that is when you are supposed to double down and you're supposed to love them even more. Now, I want to end this sermon today by posing a challenge to you as we approach Christmas. We're preparing to get ready for Christmas, are we not? Here's my challenge to you. I want you to think of somebody in your life with whom you have a lot of friction. 
Somebody in your life who, when you think of them, there's pain, there's hurt, there's rejection, and you don't feel that those people, that person, is worthy of your love or deserving of your love. And here's the challenge that I have for you over Christmas. I want you to find that person, and I want you to be willing to attempt to reconcile. I want you to be willing to attempt to love that person again in spite of that history. I want you to be willing to try to start over again. And the reason that I want you to do this is because that's exactly what Joseph did with Mary and Jesus. Joseph was willing to love Mary and Jesus when he had every reason not to love them. Every reason not to love them. But he was willing to do it anyway. And so the question I would pose to you is, are you willing to do the same? Are you willing to love your neighbor when you have every reason not to love them? Are you willing to set aside your differences with people who make you angry and upset? Are you willing to restructure your entire life, to set aside all the things that you think are important to be able to help someone who you do not believe deserves your help? And if you're sitting there and you're thinking of this person, you're thinking to yourself, no way, Alex. I want you to remember something, that that's the kind of love that brought Jesus into this world. That's the kind of love that makes Christmas special. That's the kind of love that Jesus asks of us, and that's the kind of love that we are celebrating on Christmas Eve. So if you are traveling over Christmas, if you will not be here with us, I want to wish you safe travels. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. But if you will be here on Christmas Eve, I hope you can, because it's going to be a wonderful evening where we're going to come to the end of this series, The Chosen One, and we're going to talk about that love that really can change the world for the better. So if I don't see you, Merry Christmas for everybody else. I'll see you on Tuesday. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.